Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity. Cleanse me from sin. For I know, I know my transgressions. And my sin is always before me. Against you and you alone have I sinned and done evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict over me and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth. Sinful? Sinful even from the time I was conceived. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop, God, and I will be clean. Wash me and I will become whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness and let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquity. Create in me, O God, a pure heart and a steadfast spirit within me. God, these words were prayed by David, knowing that he had sinned so greatly before you. But yet, David acknowledged that he was born as a sinner. He was inclined towards that sin from the very moment he was even conceived. He knew that mercy from you was the only hope he had. So he cried out to you to blot out his transgressions, his sins, knowing that it was only you that could blot out in such a way that he could be called whiter than snow. God, I know, I know that from just walking in my own shoes, there is not much snow in my life. There is definitely sin that runs very easily. And so to even think that you would be able to see me as whiter than snow, cleansed completely, righteous in your eyes, is not something I can behold. Yet the psalmist saw this from afar. David knew that there was, there was a capacity in you, not in him, but in you to have hope that that transgressions, those sins could be blotted out. And he clung to that even without knowing the story of the cross. So how much more can we stand here today as we pray to you and cry out to you, God? Cry out to you, trusting in the fact that there was a work that was a once and for all sacrifice in Jesus Christ. That we can be seen as righteous, 100% pure and holy, and yes, whiter than snow in your eyes, not because of anything we've done, but because of what Jesus has done. And so, God, if there are people here in this room that do not know that saving grace, that they have never heard of this idea that, that you, God, have loved them and that you provided a way to be in relationship with them through your son, Jesus, I ask now that you would work in their heart, give them the gift of faith, help them to believe in the work of Jesus. So thankful for the mercy 
you have provided. God, I am thankful for your love. I am thankful for your son Jesus and his obedience. Jesus, I'm thankful that you submitted to the authority and the leadership and vision of God, the Father. And I am thankful for the Holy Spirit who works in our lives to help us understand these scriptures and understand your will for our lives on a daily basis, that inner counselor. I am thankful for this church. I am thankful for the church of God that, that, that goes beyond the walls of the title of LAFC but goes into other names, but a part of the family of God that we can rely upon one another for encouragement. I am thankful for family. I am thankful for hope within the family that we can discover together greater uh, understanding and knowledge of Jesus Christ. And most of all, Lord, I am thankful that I do not have to fear to stand here and pray these things even now. And so, God, we say thank you for providing the way and the provision and the gate by which we can go boldly go into your presence. So I pray this by the name of that gate, by the name of that curtain, Jesus Christ. Amen. We are in the midst of a series called Post Tenebrous Lux, which is the celebration and also the learning of what happened 500 years ago when Luther posted the 95 Thesis in Wittenberg, Germany, 500 years ago in 1517. And today, uh, joining me on stage will be the executive pastor, Joel Lingenfelter. We truly uh, are very different in, in stature and thinking and interest. However, our vision, our heart, and our love for people are identical, which is why working with him is so much fun. And so would you welcome to the stage, Joel Lingenfelter. Oh, goodness. It's great to be here. Good morning. Welcome. Uh, what a joyous day this has been so far, and I look forward to spending some time up here with you. So, you know, I thought I would begin with something simple. You know who I am, uh, but, you know, there's some Christmas coming up, and some of you are shopping this weekend, and my wife bought me this as an early Christmas present. This is the Martin Luther action figure. Um, <clears throat> so if you want to celebrate the Reformation in style, this is not a sword, it's a pen. Uh, you know, and the Word of God here goes in his hand, and it's awesome. So uh, I couldn't find the Pope Leo for him to, you know, fight with, but it's, it's, a, it's a cool deal. So uh, there you go, and you can talk to her as to where to get one. Um, so what happens when we die, right? That's one of life, life's great questions, right? Like, why are we here? Is there a God? When will the Eagles finally win the Super Bowl? <laughs> right? Like these are the things that keep you up at night, right? What happens when we die? It is one of life's great questions. And one of the answers that's been proposed is purgatory. You've heard a lot about it. And, and the question is, do we go to purgatory when we die? Spoiler alert, no. So if the band would come back up, we'll just sing for a while and I'll go home. No, um, you probably expect a little more out of me, but, but that really truly is the spoiler alert. And in essence, when you ask the question, well, what is purgatory? The answer truly is nothing, right? Because it's not real. But, but I'm going to explain it a little better than that because hopefully you, you think that's, that's probably not a great explanation. Now, my wife said this sermon should come with a warning message. And that is buckle your seatbelt because this thing goes fast and furious with a lot of the theology. So hang tight. We're going we're gonna to roll through a lot today. Uh, but honestly, it's really good. So 
Purgatory is a belief that arose in the Catholic Church, started around the seventh century with Pope Gregory, was really where we first start to see rumblings of it. And the church formalized it in the 13th century in 1245 at the Council of Lyon. And they define it this way, a purification so as to achieve the holiness necessary to enter the joy of heaven, which is experienced by those who die in God's grace and friendship, but still imperfectly purified. It notes that this final purification of the elect is entirely different from the punishment of the damned. So, in essence, purgatory is where you go to continue to be purified so that you can enter the presence of God. Now remember what I started with, purgatory is not real, but this is what the doctrine is. So how did this become so widespread? And we're going to walk through that, but, but the, the belief really was crystallized in the 13th century there, and then what really caused it to take hold. If you think about cars, right, I'm a car guy, um, in the early 19th, 1900s, not 19th century, in the early 1900s, Henry Ford created something different, right? What was that? The Model T, right? And what made the Model T different than every car that had come before it? Right? The way it was made, right? That it was done on an assembly line. Now, why was that significant? Because it could be made in much greater quantities and so much cheaper. Every other car was handcrafted, put together, and Henry figured out a way to make this go quicker and reduce the cost. And the results were dramatic. At one point, over half of the cars in the world were Model Ts. Now think about that, that's market share beyond market share, right? And why? Well, because it was new, but more importantly, it could be produced in mass quantity. Well, something similar to that happened back in the 15th century, right? And that was called the printing press. Right, anybody remember who made that? Gutenberg, right, and the first thing that Gutenberg printed was the Bible, right? The Latin Bible was printed by Gutenberg, but then he began to print other things and others began to use, a, you know, uh, build presses or buy presses and, and produce things. But writing was still rare. One thing that was very popular was what's called the Divine Comedy by Dante. It came out in 1472. And what happened is because this was new, right, and it was printed on the printing press, so it was way more available than previous writings, it was very exciting and, and riveting in the way that it's written, the Divine Comedy became very, very popular. And it's broken up into three parts. Most of us know of Dante's Inferno, right? But then there's Dante's Purgatorio and Dante's Paradiso, right? And those three things make up the Divine Comedy. Well, you can imagine that when you have the church formalizing a belief and then a very popular work, that one-third of it is all about purgatory. Purgatory really took hold in the minds of people as a doctrine of the church. But the question for today is, is it biblical? Right? And, and really, again, no. Okay, but is it biblical? And how did so many people get this understanding? Well, it begins with the first foundational piece of what is Scripture. Right? So what is Scripture? Well, first of all, uh, if you've heard me teach on canon and on the development of our Bible in an ABF, I love talking about how the New Testament really came into to being accepted by the church. But we really don't spend much time on the Old Testament because it's just not much of a story to tell. Right? What it is, 
is that God chose the people of Israel, right? And he created this nation, and these people had prophets that spoke to, to them from God. And they wrote down the things these prophets said, and they kept them as Scripture. So it's a really simple uh, process where the, the, the religious leaders kept the writings of the prophets because these were the Word of God, and when you ask what was the Word of God, these were the things. <clears throat> so by the time of Jesus, there was a Jewish historian named Josephus who just said, look, the Scriptures are just these, and it's what we call the Old Testament, right? It really wasn't in debate, it wasn't in dispute, there was an argument. But the prophets stopped speaking with Malachi. And there's a 400-year period of silence we call a silent period. And that, other writings happened. Other history was recorded. But it wasn't by prophets of God. And so those things that were written, those writings, they're called the Apocrypha, right? The hidden works. And it's really, really clear for a lot of reasons why those aren't Scripture. The first, as I mentioned, Josephus says, hey, this is Scripture and those aren't included. Right? But also, we have the New Testament. The writers in the New Testament say over and over again things like, for it is written, for you have heard the Lord say, right? You know those phrases. Over 250 times they cite the Old Testament. Anybody know how many citations there are of the apocryphal writings? Zero. Right, there are none. Because they're not Scripture. This is not, thus saith the Lord. Another thing is that... Uh, in 405 AD, there was a Catholic priest named Jerome. Now, Jerome was a theologian. He knew Greek. He knew Hebrew. And he decided that it was time to create a translation into Latin. This is known as the Latin Vulgate. And Jerome translated the Old and the New Testament, which by the end of the 4th century had really been crystallized and locked down. He translated the entire Bible into Latin. And his translation was so good, this was the official translation of the Catholic Church until 1979. Not bad, right? A 1,500-year run, pretty good, pretty good work. Um, but he also translated the apocryphal books. And before every one of them, he said, now, this is not Scripture. These are apocryphal writings or hidden writings, but I've included them because the church knew of them. So... Uh, those writings were around, even in the official translation the Catholic Church used, they were declared not to be Scripture. But the church had a tendency to not be careful as to what they viewed as Scripture and what they used. So, because of that, I'm going to skip forward in history just a little bit to 1546. 1546 is the Council of Trent. The councils are where the church got together, brought all the bishops and cardinals and everything together, and really talked through their theology and made statements. The Council of Trent was a reaction to the Reformation. It was a reaction to Martin Luther and others. And so they were establishing and making clear some things that had been maybe not so official. And one of the things that they did at the Council of Trent was formally said, the apocryphal writings are scripture, in direct contrast to what Jerome had written in the scriptures they were actually reading and teaching from. Now, this wasn't a big deal because nobody had scripture themselves, so they couldn't really see that and argue. They had to take the church's word for it. So, why do I spend all this time talking about the Apocrypha? Well, the reason is the doctrine of purgatory needs the Apocrypha to get started, and it comes in the book of Maccabees, and it says this, 
He also took up a collection, man by man, to the amount of 2,000 drachmas of silver and sent it to Jerusalem to provide for a sin offering. In doing this, he acted very well and honorably, taking account of the resurrection. For if he were not expecting those who had fallen would rise again, it would have been superfluous and foolish to pray for the dead. But if he was looking to the splendid reward that is laid up for those who fall asleep in godliness, it was a holy and pious thought. Now listen carefully. Therefore he made atonement for the dead so they might be delivered from their sin. Whoa, right? That's pretty different. We didn't just sing about that, did we? Right? We just sang about what Jesus did for us. But here, in the, in, for the dead in this battle, he is making that atonement by his prayers. This is directly contrary to what Scripture teaches, which is why it's so important that you're really careful what you treat as Scripture. Now, they took this not-biblical passage and they add it to the following passage from Scripture out of Revelation 21. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. So here we have the genesis of this idea that purification is necessary before we can enter the presence of God. Now let me be clear again. This is not true. This is not biblical. But this is what the doctrine is. Now, additionally, at the Council of Trent, again in 1546, they affirmed that church tradition and Scripture are of equal authority. Now, Scripture teaches that the Word of God is our final authority, not the Word of man. Look at Matthew 4.4 on screen. uh, Sorry, Jesus answered... It is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Right? What is our attention to be paid to? What are we to listen to? The word of God. We are to seek it for nourishment. We're to seek it to refresh our soul. Right? We can't live just on temporal things. We need the word of God in our lives. But then let's look at Mark chapter 7. Turn with me. You know, I totally forgot. If you do not have a Bible, please put your hands up. Our ushers who have been patiently waiting for me to get to this point will we'll get one for you. Uh, if smartphones or tablets are more your thing, the Version app has an events tab, and in there you will find Lancaster Evangelical Free Church and this morning, and it will have all the verses already ready to go for you. So one of those two things, grab a Bible, grab your app, and turn with me to Mark chapter 7. Thank you guys for being so patient. Mark chapter 7, we will begin in verse 8. Jesus is speaking here and he says this, You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to human traditions. And he continued, You have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. For Moses said, Honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses their father or mother is to be put to death. But you say that if anyone declares that what might have been used to help their father or mother is Corban, that is, devoted to God, then you no longer let them do anything for their father or mother. Now this is key. Thus you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you've handed down. And you do many things like that. 
I don't know about you, but I think nullifying the Word of God is a bad idea. Right? Right? And what does Jesus say? When you make your tradition equal to the Word of God, you nullify the Word of God. Right? Which, in Matthew 4, he says, man cannot live on bread alone, but by the Word of God. Right? This is something you need. This is not something you want to cancel out by your actions. Now, a related but separate issue is that at this council, the church declared that they are the ultimate interpreter of Scripture. Thus, there can be no argument if the church states that Scripture says something, that's it, right? <clears throat> so when the church makes this statement and basically says, look, we are the ones who interpret Scripture. We tell you the doctrine of purgatory is good and this is what God wants and this is how it works. You have to believe it. And if you disagree or you think Scripture teaches otherwise, you're wrong. The end of story, right? We've already declared we are the final arbiter. In fact, the Word of God was really hard for people to get a hold of because, one, it wasn't in the language of the people. It was in Latin or Greek and Hebrew. And then it wasn't, they weren't available. They didn't want people to have these in their hands. So I kind of built a little pyramid here to show you how this all stacks up. And at the bottom is that scripture defined, right? What do we treat as the Word of God? This matters, right? We can't look at what Tony says or what Joel says or what somebody that we really respect wrote. We need to only look at scripture, the Old Testament and the New Testament. And when the church varied from this and went away from it, problems resulted. Right? Secondly, that church is equal to Scripture, that tradition and Scripture on authority being equal, that nullifies the Word of God. And then when you say, we're the only ones that can interpret it, you eliminate any accountability to anyone. Right? So when you stack those things up and you put on top of that a doctrine, it's on a very, very bad foundation. And we're going to look at the doctrine of what's called justification today. Um, so the key issue is the doctrine of justification. It starts with the idea that Jesus can't possibly be enough for our salvation, right? That's the real problem. That's what purgatory is about, saying Jesus isn't enough. I have to do something. Now this idea, the idea that we can earn things, it goes back to the earliest days of Christianity. Turn with me to Matthew 19. We'll begin in verse 16. Just then, a man came up to Jesus and asked, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Why do you ask me about what is good? Jesus replied. There is only one who is good. If you want to enter life, keep the commandments. Which ones? He inquired. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, honor your father and mother, and love your neighbor as yourself. All these I have kept, the young man said, what do I still lack? Jesus answered, if you want to be perfect, go, sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, then come and follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I tell you, it is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. 
Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished and asked, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. Now, I want to look, really highlight two things. I know we could do a whole sermon just on this passage, but I want to look right at the beginning. What does the man say? What must I do to be saved, right? Now, this is very much, it appeals to who we are. This is how we think. What do I have to do, right? I want to be in charge. I want to, I want to take control. What do I have to do? And Jesus says, it's impossible, right? And he lays something out. If we look at the end, he talks about a camel going through the eye of a needle. Now, I've actually heard preachers try to make this sound possible, like it's really the, the gate to the city or something else. I can tell you this is about a camel, a very large animal, going through the eye of a needle that is very small. No matter how hard you try, all you're going to do is really annoy the camel, right? <laughs> and you're not going to get that thing to go through the needle. And the disciples clearly saw this when they said, this is impossible. How could anyone then enter the kingdom of God? You can't push a camel through the eye of a needle. And Jesus says, what? It is impossible. Your efforts can't get you there. But with God, all things are possible. Let's look at Galatians. The writings of the Apostle Paul to the church in Galatia. We'll look at chapter 3. The Apostle Paul writes, You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? After beginning by means of the Spirit, are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? Have you experienced so much in vain if it really was in vain? So again I ask, does God give you his spirit and work miracles among you by the works of the law or by you believing what you have heard? So also Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you, so those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse, as it is written. Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly, no one who relies on the law is justified before God, because the righteous will live by faith. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, it says, the person who does these things will live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? What are they trying to do? They say, okay, well, Jesus is fine, but then what do we have to do? What do we add to that for our salvation? And Paul says, 
Can you take what was started by the Spirit and finish it by the flesh? Of course not. Right? There's nothing we can do that would make the work of Christ better. Right? And really it comes back to that pride thing, right? Since we were little children, we've wanted to be in charge. Right? We've wanted it to be done our way, and we've wanted to, to, to do it ourselves. And it's that same pride that just gets in the way here and says, well, Jesus can't possibly be enough. What do I have to do? What's my part in this? So here's how all those elements of the pyramid interact. It starts with not being clear and careful on what exactly is Scripture. Right? And when you treat non-inspired writings as the authoritative Word of God. Those words create doubt that Jesus alone has provided atonement for our sins. And it creates an alternative that appeals to human pride. Right? It creates an alternative that we can do it. Second, when you put church tradition on equal authority with Scripture, <clears throat> when you do that, after the Council of Lyon laid out the doctrine and made it part of church dogmatics, this church authority and Scripture authority became equal. That was how things worked. Because the church was considered the final authority on interpreting Scripture, and Scripture is largely unavailable, there could be no debate, right? The church has laid it out. This is what we've said. It's equal to Scripture. Therefore, you have to listen. Thus, the, the, just, sorry, the doctrine of justification is warped by the poor foundation upon which it's placed. Essentially now, Jesus buys your admission to heaven, but you've got to work your way there. That's not what Scripture teaches. It's in direct contrast to what Scripture teaches. Let's look at a few passages that, that show us that. The first is in the book of Luke. Turn back a little bit. We're going to go to chapter 16. We'll start in verse 19. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores, and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in agony." And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. See, this clearly lays out a situation where Lazarus passes away, and he goes straight to Abraham's bosom, would be the way this would have been thought of, right? He goes straight to heaven, and he is there. Right? There's no intermediary step. 
Lazarus was a beggar. He probably wasn't known for his good works, right? And by this doctrine, he should be somewhere else. But yet what Scripture teaches is that he was right there. And at the same time, the rich man passes and is in Hades in torment. But most importantly, it tells us what? That you can't get from one place to the other after death, right? So in direct contradiction to what we read in Maccabees, where it says that you can pray for and atone for the dead, there's no atonement available to that rich man, right? There's a chasm that cannot be crossed by anyone, and his fate is sealed. That's a very big deal. Let's look also at Luke 23. Just turn forward a little bit. We'll start in verse 39. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence? We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Amen. Amen. Right now this, this is about as clear as it gets. Right? Today you'll be with me in paradise. Now an interesting little aside, years ago, had some Mormon missionaries sitting in my home, and we, the Mormon faith is very much a works-based salvation. You need to earn your way there. And I said, how do you answer this? And, and as we went back and forth, I said, but today you'll be with me in paradise. And he said, no, it doesn't say that. It says in the land of the souls. And I looked it up in Strong's, and that's what it says, and that's what it means. And, and at the moment, I didn't have the, the opportunity to contradict him, but after they left, I looked it up, and, and what it means is paradise, right? I think the Greek word is really close to like paradiso, right? It's, it's absolutely paradise. And so basically what it means is if you get in a theological argument with Joel, the best way to get out is to lie so you can leave the house, right? Like <laughs> that seemed to be the, 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 the moral of that story, but it's interesting because it just can't be answered, can it, right? This thief did nothing good his entire life. He's on that cross, why? Because he belongs there, and he knows it. And he says, this is what I deserve. And Jesus says, you're with me. Amen, Amen right? And if there was anybody in the entire history of the world that should be going to purgatory for all the bad things they did, it would have been that guy, right? And yet Jesus says, today, you'll be with me in paradise. Yeah, and that's good news, isn't it? All right, one more passage here. Hebrews chapter 9. We'll start in verse 25. You've got to go back towards the back of your Bible a little bit more. Sorry to be jumping around so much, but there's a lot of Scripture here that, that addresses this, and that's the theological fire hose my wife warned you about. So, <clears throat> Hebrews chapter 9 will begin in verse 25. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that is not his own. 
Otherwise, Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But he has appeared once and for all at the culmination of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many, and he will appear a second time not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Says Jesus appeared how many times? Once and for all. When? At the culmination of the ages. The culmination means at the center point of when it all mattered, Jesus did this. You cannot possibly be outside of this work of Christ. Every year, he didn't have to do it over and over again. He did it one time for all of us. All of us are justified, made holy, and able to enter the presence of God because of the work of Jesus Christ once and for all at the culmination of the ages. If there's any passage in Scripture that just blows apart the doctrine of purgatory, here it is. And all the other ones do too. But this is definitely it, right? <clears throat> I read it, and when I was working on this, I thought, there it is. That, like, I should just open with that and be done. So, why don't we believe in purgatory today? Let's back up and just kind of recap and cover why we don't teach this now. Number one, we do not recognize anything outside of the Hebrew Bible as the Old Testament, just as Christ and the apostles did, right? They knew what was Scripture. They used that. They did not use those, those writings that were not. We follow the same work. Number two, we believe that Scripture is our final authority, not the church, Scripture is our final authority, not the church. Church tradition and teachings must be supported by Scripture and do not have independent authority. This is one of the key elements of the Reformation. I think we'll hear more about it next week. Three, we believe that every believer through the Holy Spirit has the ability to interpret Scripture. This is why we encourage everyone to not only have a Bible, but to spend time daily reading it. The faithful study of the Word of God by the people of the church holds the church leadership accountable to teach the Word of God. Amen. Amen? If we preach something else, you should be up here afterwards saying, hey, show me that. Let's talk about that. Is that really what Scripture says? Right? And every once in a while we get questions. People don't understand something we said, and we love to walk through it because what we're trying to do is teach and explain the Word of God. Right? There is no church tradition in the EFCA that supplants, comes alongside, because when you do that, what happens? You nullify the Word of God. Remember that? Number four, we believe that we are justified by faith alone in Jesus alone. Our works, our good deeds, they flow outward from our faith and have nothing to do with our justification. Let me say that again. Our good deeds flow outward from our faith. They're evidence of our faith but they have nothing to do with our justification and with our salvation. Number five, because Jesus' sacrificial atonement for our sins is complete, our justification is complete, and there is no need for any additional cleansing. In 1 John it says this, And now, dear children, continue in him so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. 
We can enter the presence of God because of the blood of Christ. 1 John 1, 7 says it this way, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. The blood of Jesus, the son of God, purifies us from all sin. Period, dot, end of story. Amen? Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, nothing but the blood of Jesus can wash away my sin. Lord, it is you that have done all the work. What you've asked of us is simple. Lord, you've said you are sinners. The wages of your sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That if we believe that you rose from the dead, and we confess with our mouth that you are Lord. Lord, you say we will be saved. So Lord, we are incredibly thankful this weekend. We are thankful for the work that you did on the cross. We are thankful for the blood of Jesus. We are thankful that without you, it is impossible to enter heaven. Lord, but through God, all things are possible. Amen. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. To the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us, in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding.